2: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Judy Bloom Blooms Again edition, appropriate for spring. It's Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023. On today's show, Kerry Russell returns in The Diplomat. It's on Netflix. It's a sort of political intrigue thriller about a career foreign officer who gets tapped to be Our ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to England, Uh, fun and mayhem and sue I think is probably a fair way to put it. It also stars Rufus Sewell as her roguish husband and Michael McKeon as the president. Uh, Many others, great ensemble cast. And then Judy Blume's groundbreaking coming-of-age novel finally makes it to the screen. Heather Schwedell will join us to discuss Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And finally... What of the wedding, that ancient ritual rooted in everything we thought we'd evolved beyond, like patriarchy and gender norms and spending gross amounts of money? And anyway, we discuss a series of articles on the subject in Slate. Joining me today is Julia Turner of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens uh, is the film critic of Slate. Hey, Dana.
3: Hey, hey, Steve.
2: The glory of being in the studios, I get to see your cool outfits today, capped off literally. That's an amazing cap.
3: <laughs> Just wearing one of my many freebies that I get at the end of the <laughs> Schwag, year from various productions. Head. Thanks, Ryan Johnson <laughs> for the baseball cap.
2: T- it says "A Ryan Johnson who done it," but doesn't have a title on it, so it's like
3: because he has many more to, many, to roll
2: out. <laughs> many behind him, many more to come. Anyway, it's already a fetish object in my um, acquisitive uh, mind. But um, all right, shall we make a show? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Carrie Russell, she, of course, of Felicity and the Americans, returns now in The Diplomat. It's on Netflix and a big hit there. It's a political thriller from a former writer-producer of The West Wing and Homeland. It has great bloodlines, I suppose you could say. Russell plays Kate Weiler, a career behind-the-scenes sort of embassy diplomat type, who's uh, out of the blue— tapped to be the U.S. ambassador to England. She's suddenly thrust not only into a huge job, but into the limelight, which she's never sought out before. Um, and also a uh, potential domestic presidential politics, all kinds of international intrigue. She's just suddenly in the thick of it. And for reasons, she's only just beginning to grok. Uh, and most immediately, I should say a British warship has been bombed in the Gulf. It throws everyone into a very West wing style high gear. Uh, It stars Rufus Sewell as her husband, an exceedingly complicated marriage. We'll get into it. And Michael McKeon is a very, very Biden-esque president and a variety of others. In the clip, we're going to hear a good example of the ongoing conflict, really, at the center of the show, which is Kate's husband, Hal, played by Sewell, used to be Ambassador himself, a very prominent one, in fact. And he keeps taking problems into his own hands. And here, Kate tells him to, yes, stop doing that let's uh let's listen you need to leave you need to eat something you're bottoming out you need to leave this country as soon as this lunch is over you need to get on some plane going someplace and not be here anymore What are you? you made an inappropriate outreach to a hostile power with whom we have no diplomatic relations you made an investigation exponentially more difficult you have so thoroughly fucked with my head i i can't think straight
3: or analyze information or Provide objective counsel. I can't do the fucking job if you are within a hundred mile radius. I
1: am begging you. Go.
2: Julia, let me start with you. This show's taken off. Uh, People I know are really talking about it. What'd you you make of it?
0: This show is extremely fun. I'll be so (laughs) curious to hear if you guys (laughs) agree with me. (laughs) But um, I was trying to think what the right... Predecessor is obviously Carrie Russell, an extraordinary actress known for the Americans. Truly, I think we will look back on as one of the great greats of the peak TV era. Um, you know, the kind of bona fides of the creators with some West Wing experience. There's certainly like liberal fantasy television here. But I think actually the best antecedent I decided upon reflection is scandal, because Everything about the actual political setup of this seems like very flimsy and unrealistic. (laughs) But then cast over that is sort of a set of human drama that is pretty fun and like well acted and decently realized. And it's a soap. It's like a soap in Britain with horses and um, carriages and uh, spies. And it's pretty fun. I enjoyed this soap. Don't pop my bubble. What did you
2: guys make of it? Oh dear. Okay, the bubble is wafting over to Dana. Are you?
3: It's a very pleasing bubble. The note that I have on this show is shave twenty points of IQ off the Americans. <laughs> you have twenty, show.
2: only twenty.
3: <laughs> but I think you're right, Julia. That we we're, we're thinking of the Americans because it's about Carrie Russell being half of a couple who's doing all yes. kinds of international espionage-related things. But it really is. It is more of a. a a meld of West Wing and I didn't watch Scandal, but I'm aware of it, (laughs) of that kind of glossy uh, political soap. There's a comparison that Hal, the Rufus Sewell character, makes uh, to Cinderella early mm-hmm. in the show, where he says, "Just lean into the Cinderella aspect of this job." Right? As she's as she's balking at taking this very show pony kind of post, and uh, and the whole show really leans into the Cinderella thing. Another of the notes I had on it was, "There's this ongoing trope in the Hunger Games books where Katniss Everdeen, the heroine, hates to get dressed up. She just hates it. She doesn't care about glamour at all. But oh dear, <laughs> there must be a three page description of her gown." And uh, and this this show completely has that right like the carrie russell character has this sort of butch side i mean she's very much a straight woman who has lots of straight good sex with her husband but she has this side of not enjoying the girly bit of her job uh yet the show is constantly forcing her into as you said horses and carriages and t-length gowns and going to all these events and so it really has this fantasy fulfillment kind of side to it as well which i found extremely amusing
2: yeah uh I mean, I would say a couple of things about it. You know, it's like a deep state melodrama with a sort of reassuring through theme, which is that, you know, semi-authoritarian boobs run the world that uh, by and large or seem to be trying to wag the tail of global politics uh, continually. Uh, we've just gotten over with a, like, you know, a, a insuperably incompetent and really sort of evil president. Um, uh, we've moved on to a, slightly dotty one uh, who may not know what he doesn't know and the michael mckeon character who's clearly a biden substitute in this but of course there has to be this sub surface layer of hyper competent people who keep these people from ruining the world you know the super high stakes minute by minute game of just keeping the seat-of-the-pants leadership style of these demagogues and populist boobs and, you know, geriatric. I All due respect to Joe Biden, and, you know, I mean, the show certainly indicates that this person is not really a boob, but they can't necessarily be trusted in the moment um, to be fully compassmentous or on point. The point is that they've done a very good job of taking the cards that they were dealt in order to do something that's reminiscent of west wing but without an admirable you know clinton or obama substitute at the heart of it um and done quite well i would categorize this as there's dumb smart and there's smart dumb right and dumb smart is like bill and ted's excellent adventure dumb and dumber like like actually kind of smart movies made by very very sharp shrewd people that have this surface dumbness that actually doesn't go all that deep in some respects and then there's smart dumb which is you know i would characterize as a highly detailed behind the scenes sort of procedural where you get to eavesdrop on the quote-unquote adults in the room um that actually as julia says is a basically high school melodrama about passing one another notes and people wanting to sleep with each other and like playing dress up and who's popular and they've completely nailed that combination. And I love Carrie Russell in this. I haven't yet watched The Americans. She is so good in this. I mean, if she weren't, it wouldn't carry. And then Rufus Sewell is phenomenal in it as this roguish husband who, um, I mean, he seems, I don't know whether this is the case, it seems sort of modeled on Richard Holbrook like a kind of legend in the ambassadorial world who's an utter duplicitous rogue who may or may not have his wife's best interests at heart and their marriage, there's almost like a screwball, a nasty screwball intensity to their marriage at the center of it loving nasty screwball intensity of their marriage at the center of it i'm all in i think it's, yeah, a, it's a comedy delight. of remarriage right yep, screwball style 100 yeah, exactly. because they're
3: splitting up but they can't really split up because they kind of belong together because they're both so roguish and have the same kind of brain and that's all played really well i also love that it's, it's kind of there's a lot of sleeping around on the show and there's no judgment about it whatsoever <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was so
0: enjoying it, like just drinking it up. And then I was trying to think through like, why do I not respect it or myself for enjoying it so much? Like what, what (laughs) is the exact, Steve, I do not know that I can parse the difference between smart, dumb and dumb, smart, and which one is the adjective and which one is the noun. But (laughs) I, I was maybe like trying to engage a similar question, which is like, what, why is this both great and not truly great? And I have, of course, have been watching the final season of Succession. And I think there is a way in which, like, if you think about just how specific the characters on that show are, like how finely they are drawn, how particular the like psychological fuck upitude of Roman is, or the uh, kind of wanting it all ways-ness of shit, like the the acuteness mm. of the psychological yeah. portraits of that show is incredibly precise. And in this show, because Carrie Russell and Rufus Sewell are such great, charismatic, fun actors, their characters feel pretty fully realized, but the way that they're written and the way that the show is structured, they're like these types. And the types take on specificity because of the performance, but not because of what the show is actually doing. And they really can't, they don't have time for them to be more than types because there's so much plot. Like, and this is the scandal of it. Like there's so much plot just in this first season. And the show was, it was number one on Netflix. It's still in the top five. It's just been renewed for a second season. You know, (laughs) like there's no time for, for them to have too much character because they've got to move on to the next twist and the next turn um, but I, it, it was sort of like thinking of that comparison that helped me put my finger on like both what was great about the show and what was sort of less than
2: mm-hmm.
0: like extraordinary about it.
2: I would say that it's a unexpected strength of the show, given everything Julia said, that they, they seem to have worked out to a reasonable degree of plausibility or at least kind of seductive intricacy the mechanics of the um intrigue right so it's i verisimil- if you called it verisimilitude you're a just ridiculous sucker but it's not lazy is i guess what i'm saying they've decided to make an elaborate drawing whether it refers to a thing in the real world precisely or not it's elaborately constructed drawn shaded in parts and it is the medium through which these actors get to relate to one another and be angry at each other and dramatic and establish sexual tension and and on and on and on. And that's not, I don't think that's easy to do. Someone took the care to build this universe that may be fake, but make it internally coherent, intricate and compelling. I actually think it's dumb, like not dumb, but it's like it's smart dumb. I keep coming back <laughs> to it, like this meaningless category. No, the, the,
3: the analogy of the drawing really, really works. There's a whole piece in Slate by Fred Kaplan, who writes, among yeah, other yeah, things, yeah. on diplomacy and foreign affairs and things like that, about how utterly ridiculous the whole premise of the show is. That, For example, <laughs> just the fact that the British ambassador, the American ambassador <laughs> to Britain is always... A, a, by nature, by yeah. its by essence, a significant political figure who got it as a fancy sinecure, right? It's not someone obscure who they're sort of trying to promote through back channels and all the things this show presupposes. So I, I don't doubt Fred Kaplan. I'm sure that this is absolutely untrue to the way, you know, actual diplomacy works. But you're right that within the, the laws of its universe, it's, it's consistent and Most of all, it's just fun.
2: It's fun to watch. I mean, Julia, bear in mind that some of us, and I'm not going to name which one of the three of us, some of us spend inordinate time reading the comments section of a certain Jets blog. And the (laughs) owner of the Jets is is Woody Johnson, a Johnson & Johnson heir, and one of the great boobs, like born on third base, thought he hit a triple boobs, who's ever lived. And he is our last ambassador to England under Trump. And so the joke on the blog is, imagine casting Woody Johnson in the Kerry Russell role or part, this like <laughs> <laughs> complete lost moron. I mean, you know, it's just, that's where one has to remember. Like, this is just a, the sinecure to end all sinecures. is the idea that this person is at the heart of a, you know, shitstorm and keeping uh the world intact is just hilariously. Yeah,
3: it would be an Ian Nucci film if if a real life <laughs> ambassador was cast into this exactly. scenario, right? Yeah, I mean, I
0: think that's one of the kind of pleasing tensions of the show is that it is like on its face preposterous. I mean, I enjoyed reading uh, Fred Kaplan's High dudgeon about the piece, but like you don't need to be Fred Kaplan to be like, wait, what? (laughs) Like like, one of the conceits of the show, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say this because it's revealed in the pilot, but one of the conceits of the show is that the reason that this kind of like real world back channel operative who has no time for fancy dresses has been promoted (laughs) to this functionary (laughs) position is that she's actually secretly being groomed to be the vice president, which, what? Like, that doesn't really make sense. But the thing that's sort of (laughs) pleasing and has this pleasing tension about it is that, and this is where it does echo the West Wing, the, the, the finely detailed, completely false drawing that you describe, Steve, like it gives that same pleasure that the West Wing does of, like, this is how it really works. And that's what's so funny about it, is that it gives you this panache of like, we're letting you in. This is how it really works. Like, you just see the helicopter landing on TV, but behind the scenes, the butlers are doing this and the <laughs> diplomats are saying that. <laughs> and and yet, it's all clearly not true. so you're like, how is it giving me that pleasure? <laughs> when know. it's so clearly telling me, like, a fable about that yeah. at the same time. But I will absolutely snack this up and season two. It's delectable and enjoyable, so... Cue
2: it up. Ida, does she become Veep? Does their marriage survive? I'm all in. All right. It's, the, uh, it's called The Diplomat. Check it out. Uh, if you like it or don't like it, let us know. All right. Let's move on.
3: Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
2: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. All right, before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business. Dana, what, uh, what do we got?
3: Steve, we have but one item of business this week, and that is to tell listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're talking about Google Maps. We got this idea after reading an article in The Atlantic by Will Peischel that's called A Refuge from Internet Algorithms is Hiding in Plain Sight. It's mostly about the reviews on Google Maps and what the experience of surfing them is like, but we're going to talk in a larger sense about Google Maps is an app, our own relationship to it, how we use it, if we like it. I think it's actually a really rich topic, and I can't wait to discuss it with you guys. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear that at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. In exchange for signing up for Slate Plus, you get ad-free podcasts. You get bonus content, like the segment I just described, and lots of other shows have them too. And you get unlimited access to all of the writing on slate.com. You'll never hit a paywall when you belong to Slate Plus, and you'll also be supporting the magazine and the journalism that our wonderful colleagues are doing. These memberships matter a lot to Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right, back to the show.
2: All right, well, the movie Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, has just been released. It's based, of course, on the groundbreaking young reader, classic by Judy Bloom, the author Judy Bloom, the 1970 novel. uh, Took this long to come to the screen, as I understand it, because she didn't really want it made. There's another Blumissance going on. There have been several. I've been informed over the past uh, many decades. Due to a series of snafus, I was not able to see the movie. So we're right now joined by Slate staff writer Heather Schwedell to pinch hit for me. Heather, thank you so much for coming in and joining us.
1: Of course. Thank you for having me.
2: All right. This version, I should say, is written for the screen and directed by Kelly Freeman Craig. It stars Abby Ryder Fortson as the title character. Also, Rachel McAdams, uh, Kathy Bates, and others. Um, In the clip, we're about to hear Margaret's mom takes her bra shopping for the first time. Why don't we listen?
1: Excuse me. Uh, we're looking for a bra for my daughter.
0: Hmm. Well, we don't have many that small. But come with me, dear. I'll measure you. Arms up, dear. Hmm. Barely a 28. Not even a double A. Your best bet is going to be to go with one of okay. these grow bras here. So one day when you do grow, it'll grow with you. Okay. Thank you very much. Sure. Thanks. We'll just go try it on. the tough bit i can't even do this to this day okay how's that feel i cannot
2: wait to take it off yeah welcome to womanhood (laughs) oh man i'm so sorry i missed this movie dana you were really enthusiastic about it as i understand this novel is it's just a milestone in many young readers lives including at least one of my daughters um And here it is finally, and and you admired it, yes?
3: I loved the movie, absolutely loved. I'm very curious to hear from Heather and Julia what their history with the book is because I actually, I'm sure I read the book um because it was just there it was omnipresent in my childhood as as all of judy bloom's big novels of the time were um but i don't have any strong memory of the book and i think by the time i read it i was already reading adult literature i kind of went straight from you know reading the same kids books over and over to just pulling books off my parents shelves and reading them and my memory of These kind of books, which are not quite YA, but I guess middle grade readers, right? I mean, YA was not really as much of a thing at the time, Um, is that they were sort of there and I read them, but they weren't necessarily formative for me. Uh, But then on watching this movie and then sort of accompanying some of this Judy Bloom renaissance you're talking about, like watching the great new documentary about her on Amazon and hearing her on Fresh Air last week and just she's everywhere right now in the culture. And then you sort of realize you have one of those retroactive realizations like, oh, yeah without judy bloom i probably wouldn't have half of the attitudes that i have right the sort of less hung up than my mother's generation mm. attitudes about things like menstruation or having sex in high school other things she wrote about right masturbation she wrote about in her book dini and I think I grew up in some sort of late 70s atmosphere where that was just accepted. But now, when you look at the culture wars that are happening and the, you know, Florida school children that are being forbidden from even talking about menstruation in elementary school and, you know, the absurd level of, you know, repression that's coming back now, those were precious times, you know? I mean, I I think I didn't realize that in relation to that and in relation to abortions being available and normal, right? That was just, in fact, a a brief blip in history that I was living in. Mm -hmm. And so... Realizing that made this movie seem special and important, and the book seemed special and important in a way it hadn't at the time. Also, this is that was all background, but let's get to the actual movie itself, the film with by Kelly Freeman Craig. It's a great movie, and it's the kind of movie that never makes it to the theater anymore. I mean, I think it's more of really a, a film for adult women than for children and, and young mm-hmm. women, and I wonder yeah. what you two think of that, because Rachel McAdams, the mother character, is a much bigger character than she is in the book. She has her own arc. You know, she's a working mother who gives up her job to Moved to the suburbs, as Judy Bloom did in the 1960s. And that's all an add-on from the book that I think makes the movie work incredibly well. And Rachel McAdams and Abby ryder Fortson are both fabulous together. They seem so much like mother and daughter. Last thing I'll say is that I saw this with my mother. I took her to a press screening, um, and it was an unusual treat to get to, to see this particular movie with her, and we both loved it and cried.
0: I also saw this movie with my mother, and we both loved it and cried. Like, I never see movies with my mother. That's so funny that you did.
3: That is, that is an odd coincidence. But Julie, you have a very different history with the book, right? I think you have strong negative feelings about Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, the book. And I wanted to know about that.
0: I do. And then watching this movie made me wonder if it's just yet another book that I am misapprehended in my smarty pants youth. But I remember, so I read a ton of Judy Bloom. I think like you, Dana, I probably read it all you know young because I read you know I probably read it in like second grade rather than middle school and then you know was reading grown-up books by the time I was actually thinking about puberty in any real way but I remember it as like the alienating book about periods because the main in my memory and again maybe not true the main character is like so obsessed with her own physical maturation and getting her period and when she's going to get her period. And then also that because it's written in the 70s, like it describes her curiosity about an entanglement with like the period technology of the time, which in my memory in the book includes like using a belt of some kind, which is no longer what the technology requires. And she like practices with the belt. Like there was just this – kind of concern and obsession about the period and the apparatus of the period just did not square with either my lived experience when I read the book, which was probably like too young to actually have thoughts about periods, but, or my lived experience of like a person anticipating getting and then eventually getting a period, like just was never that big of a deal, but not in a way that made me, I mean, I also love Judy Bloom's books. I read all of them, again, read them young, I think, but they are wonderful. And, you know, sort of like family dramas and their frankness about all these subjects didn't feel radical in my 80s childhood. It just felt normal. And I think you're right, Dana, to sort of look to prize that frankness, um, especially as it seems under threat at the moment.
1: I'm so glad you brought up the belt. (laughs) I I remember the the belt from the book um, very well. And I think I had maybe more of a, a typical experience with this book. I I read it and loved it at the time. I don't think I had any complicated negative feelings about it. But it, it's also not one that I would have ever thought of as as a touchstone or a favorite book. So one thing I really appreciated about the movie is it – there were certain things in it I did remember really well. Um, there, there's a character who when she gets her period, she sends a postcard and it just it only says three words. I got it. And I, I love that. And I remembered that. So it, it was just really lovely to me the way this book did sort of sneak into my psyche and it's it's still there. Um, and in that same way, I I was wondering, I, or I wish they had portrayed the belt. I sort of understand why they didn't. It's this outdated technology, I guess, before pads had, it was easy to put like stickers or adhesives on pads. They were held up with a belt. And I was sort of looking forward to seeing that in the movie because that was one of the fascinating things in the book that. That I found interesting. I, I guess it would have been sort of a distraction to to portray it. Um, but I also think it was interesting what Dana said about this being a movie for adults, because you know I can't see it now as anything other than adult, an adult. But I, I think I would have liked it as a child, and and I was sort of touched to see. I think there was about a ten year old girl in my screening, which I thought was lovely. But it's also rated PG thirteen, um, which was surprising to me.
0: It's so interesting what you say about the belt, Heather, because actually I feel like one of my experiences of reading the book was like, this is no longer relevant. Like being a woman used to be so difficult with the belts, but like I live in the future and women can do anything. And Geraldine Ferraro ran for vice president and uh, like these sad women of the past with their belts. I think I had like a kind of um there was like a specificity to the seventiesness of it even from the mid 80s that you know i like whatever i it is probably the wrong way to have read it or thought about it um but i think the book is so set in time that i wonder if it would have been interesting to include that
1: yeah um i i think the movie it does make certain choices i, I like that it, it was still set in the 70s I, it, the clothes it, are fantastic by the way absolutely great costumes by Ann Roth. they really mm-hmm. are and it sort of reminds me of the role doll thing of I, you know I don't want these things to be updated for now I, I want the original text or um but but then there there are certain things I was also wondering about the movie doesn't actually show any blood and th- that's something that that I only sort of noticed at, at the very end um not to give any spoilers, but someone does get their period. And it's sort of specifically shot around in a way that I was kind of like, huh. And it did seem a little old fashioned or of a different era. If the whole point of this movie and this story is to make normalize and make women feel comfortable with their bodies, and this is not this gross thing, like, Why couldn't they show, like, a little speck of blood? Especially if it's PG-13,
3: right? (laughs) I mean, what is the PG-13 rating actually about? This this movie has no sex. It has barely any cursing. There's nothing really frightening or raunchy about it. So it does seem like if you're going to give it the PG-13, at least show the blood. At the same time, I noticed that at the time, too, in that scene, and also thought, well, maybe this makes a certain kind of sense in that it's offering some privacy and discretion to the character, right? Which maybe, in a way, adds to... A young girl's sense of her dignity in watching it. And that maybe this is, I think, also maybe why the belt was left off. It makes it less scary to an 11 year old girl, Margaret's age, who's watching it thinking, I don't know if I want this to happen. (laughs) Right. I mean, there may be something a little soft peddling about not showing blood, but I can also see how that could be a a generous or um, respectful decision. I mean, these are all these are all interesting questions, but I, I want to make the point just to, to veer off of the menstruation topic for a minute that the, the movie and the book, too, is about much more than that. And even the title kind of gives that away. It really is in many ways about this spiritual search of of Margaret, the main character who is in this interfaith family. She has a Jewish dad, secular Jewish dad and a lapsed Christian mom who has fallen out of touch with her fundamentalist parents. That's all from the book, too. And uh, and so there's a, a lot in the movie about her searching for meaning in in the world, and you know how to live in the world as a person without God, which is a very big question for an eleven year old to be wrestling with. And I really, really respect that the movie, like the book, takes that quest really seriously. There's something about the tone of this movie that is just, I think, so hard to strike. That it's about a child who really is played by a child and acts like a a kid her age, uh, but who is grappling with a lot of big questions and. Uh, it's it's just beautifully done. It reminded me in some ways of movies like Freaky Friday, you know, another movie for kids, but that is completely watchable by by adults and is about real things and people struggling with real problems. But in a sort of in a, in a way that is accessible and maybe fun for, for young and older people to experience
1: together.
2: Mm, amazing. All right. Well, the movie is Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. It's out in theaters now. Check it out and let us know what you thought. Uh, Heather, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Find life and art from FD Weekend wherever you listen.
2: All right. Well, statistically speaking, marriage is on the downswing. It's down about 60% the number of weddings over the last 50 years in this country. Not to mention, of course, I think as we all know, gender norms are being scrambled. Um, it raises an interesting question. Why are people still getting married? How are they getting married? How has the institution evolved? Is it going extinct? Uh, and if it isn't, why? We discuss a series of... Slate articles, let me quote here, a pop-up Slate series about the unsettled state of the American wedding. So it surged last year, Dana, coming out of COVID. Understandably, people had delayed and delayed. But um, COVID's a it is something of a great reset, a great rethink. And I do think it's a relevant question. Like, Why does this kind of archaic and weird, in some ways, given the way a general ethos about gender itself and gender relations and uh, commitment and on and on and on and on. But these have changed radically. Um, where is marriage now? What did you take away from this series of pieces?
3: I mean, it was a really, really fun package. I recommend that people flip through this this bunch of articles about weddings, which take it on from every angle from, you know, trends in wedding dresses to, you know, the destination wedding um I guess COVID or no COVID, I've had these questions about weddings forever, and I'm really—I don't know if we've had this as a topic before. This type of general question about um, the the tradition of getting married in front of people, but it's something that has always puzzled me, (laughs) and which is why I never wanted to do it myself. But yeah, there is something strangely persistent about even some of the most, what seemed to me, patriarchal of these traditions, like the white dress. I don't think I had realized how recent the white dress tradition is until reading that piece on Slate about the tradition of the white gown. I guess I knew it was something from the 19th century, but it's actually apparently Queen Victoria's wedding in 1840 that kind of set the standard that you get married in white, Mm. right? And it's just slowly grown, you know, spread throughout the globe uh, since then. And here we are, stuck still with this emblem of virginity, right, connected to the woman being given away, another patriarchal tradition. I even find the ring, you know, the idea that you have to have this visual symbol, it's sort of like a brand on cattle or something like that. I mean, excuse me to anyone who's wearing a wedding (laughs) ring. But this is just for me. Like, now I'm just speaking for my own personal psychology. I never identified with any of those traditions and find them alien. Um, But they seem to be strangely persistent, even in this era, as you say, of of everything else shifting and changing. So it seems like the size of weddings is changing. They're getting smaller, right? They're getting more sort of focused and customized and personalized, and people are expressing their culture a bit more than before. But when it comes to the old gender norms and the idea of, you know, purity and being given away and all of these things, it just, it seems strangely hard to shake. At the same time, I say this as if I'm some sort of, you know, (laughs) utter critique. I mean, I just went to a great wedding last weekend the bride wore white. I had a wonderful time. It was a great event. As a guest at weddings, I I get why you want to have a celebration and have your family there and what a meaningful day it is. But as someone participating in it, I'm always amazed that even some of my most, you know, progressive friends who live in ways that are outside the norm and other circumstances show up at their wedding and what the hell are they wearing? A white dress. <laughs> Who's giving them away? Their dad. I don't know. I'm I, I'm sounding like such a curmudgeon here. I think you should throw it to Julia.
2: <laughs> Julia, let's begin with just how radically different it is to be one of the two spouses, future spouses, you know, and one of the guests, right? Um, I found being in my own wedding tremendously alienating and out of body as many people I think describe it it's sort of for everybody else in some sense that's and, partly
3: why I never wanted one my parents described their wedding in that way yeah. they said we felt like it was out of our hands and it was just a day that other people were controlling and, and right. that, that never appealed to me not that everyone has to feel that
2: way no not at all but but I don't think it's uncommon to feel that way and, and yet many people really loved our wedding and really loved being there and remember it extremely fondly and on and on and relatedly julia i i loved being at your wedding i really got a sense of how both you and your partner's families in an extended sense really spread and intertwined with one another and just like the deep tentacles of affection and support that both of you had in the world and like it that energy was in the room i met people who made it even more concrete for me. It was like like I really quite loved your wedding. It was it was for what it's worth. And so it's just, I, I see both sides of this. I'm curious where where you come out on it. I got
0: married in a white dress and my dad walked me down the aisle. I, 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 and I loved my wedding. I had a great wedding. I mean, the thing that felt subversive about our wedding is that we got engaged in January and married in early May. Gonna be my anniversary coming on up here. Um, and so we did a 14 week, we cabined all of the prep and stress into 14 weeks and it was fantastic. Like strong recommend Mm -hmm. to anybody who doesn't want the wedding to eat their life. You can put on a wedding in that amount of time. You can find a venue, you can find a dress, you can pick out plates. And then you're done and you don't have to think about (laughs) it anymore. (laughs) I think the cost, I think it costs a little bit more sometimes to rush things. It was maybe not the um, most economic way to do a wedding, but um, I mean, just to zoom out now as both no longer the bride and also no longer the generation of person who goes to weddings, you know, two to 10 times a year in the sort of like coupling up phase of life. Um, I'm going to float a theory here that I'm not sure I'm fully behind, so tell me what you guys think about it. But I feel like modern life does not provide enough opportunities for, like, gathering revelry, joy, drink, and, like, a happy mix of people you know well and, and pleasant strangers. Like, it's not... Uh, you know, I don't know, you can sort of find it in the world, but it's, you get, especially as you get it further into middle age, it's just like harder to scare that up. It's fun. So I feel like all of these coupling up partners sort of have this social burden of like providing venues like this for the rest of us um, to kind of see and be seen and observe people's attire and comportment and admire or judge, be moved to joy or scandalized by the, like, idiot toast of the drunk best man or, you know, I don't know. It's just like a pageant. You're putting on a pageant. And that is what is so alienating about it. I mean, I remember when we were getting married, realizing, like, okay, especially if you're someone who's never wanted to be the center of attention, which is maybe more true of my partner than than me, but, like, you are writing, producing, starring in... And directing a play for everyone you've ever known or liked about your most intimate relationship and in the entire future of your life. Like that's a crazy thing to do. No wonder it's stressful. Like it's wild. But you know, I, I mean I thought this late package was great. And I also um it was interesting reading it because it just feels less and less as, you know, various people challenge gender like there's just fewer there's a less oppressive set of norms to argue against like I have so much respect and admiration for people who who didn't want to deal with the trappings of it and and who've constructed their lives in their own way and didn't want to put on a dress or have a party or whatever it is like the choices you make seem totally in keeping with you and your spirit Dana and and don't you know, like your, your partnership and relationship is your partnership and relationship has nothing to do with what what kind of party you did or didn't throw at a particular juncture where you made a particular decision about the, your level of commitment to your relationship. Right. And like, I guess I also feel the same about mine. Like, I don't know, we felt like throwing a party. We wanted to celebrate. I like clothes. I got a (laughs) fancy dress. It, it didn't, I feel like my feminist bona fides and personhood just seem independent of the choices we made about that party. But I will say, I will tell my favorite story from our wedding. Maybe it's not my favorite, but a story from our wedding, which is like, you can just control the day. Like, you can't control the day, but you can. We, because we planned it so hastily, we... um Maybe didn't communicate everything we needed to to everyone, including our DJ. And although we had sort of a semi-Jewish secular wedding, and we stomped the glass, and there was a ketubah, we didn't want to do the chair thing. Like it wasn't that Jewish of a wedding. It seems honestly terrifying to be up in the chairs. It was like more center of attentioniness at the uh, like it was too much. We didn't want to do the chairs. But somebody got the idea that we should do the chairs and told the DJ, and he started playing the song. But we had like finished our toasts and we were having our cake and we just continued sitting in the corner at a table eating cake. And then they turned the song off and we didn't do the chairs. Because I didn't want to do the chairs and it was our fucking wedding. So like you can you can just resist the oppression of the day if you want. It's a funny it was a funny moment, but like also a fine one. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> it occurs to me maybe this is what we're getting at perhaps, which is that if you're part of a if you have been historically categorized because of your preferences or lifestyle as the other and been excluded from these kinds of rituals i could understand embracing it if you see what i mean like gay marriage why was gay marriage considered a and it should have been a non-negotiable human right right i mean it's <laughs> i mean for all the obvious reasons right the experience of the ritual is one of exclusion you know othering and possible belittlement and so gay friends of mine who get married it's like there's something really deeply celebratory about it and cannot in a billion years i think be interpreted as somehow patriarchal concession or something Um, and that has an interesting relationship to how it can liberate everybody else to appropriate from it what they want and creatively as Julia did in hers like creatively manipulated or delete portions, heighten others, and make make of it what they will or not do it at all, right I mean, it's like in that sense kind of a wonderful thing um the way in which freedom has been uh conferred on everybody as a consequence of the end of the closet, for example,
0: yeah, and you you can confer your own meaning on things like to me my dad walking me down the aisle like i'm so glad he did you know he's he's since died and it was never about him giving me away. And my parents actually, and I maybe would have rankled if they weren't, but they they would have been like so offended and irritated if my husband had asked them permission to marry me. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> Definitely not up to them, you know. Like that that particular thing, I think, would have rankled. I mean, whatever, I wouldn't have <laughs> wouldn't have been marrying someone who thought they should do that. Obviously, um, and they they would have felt like that meant I was with the wrong person if that had happened, but. You know, like you, you grew up in a family of girls with a dad. Like, like he was my main man for a while, and then I was like partnering up with a new guy. Like, it it was sort of a um, it wasn't like a giving away, but it was just kind of a moment about our relationship, and I loved it. It was great.
3: Yeah, and I'm sure I'm I teared up when that happened, Julia. So no. I, I can be called out on my, you know marching to City Hall grimly <laughs> kind of <laughs> pleasure-denying pleasure uh, history when I think about uh, attending your wedding and, and how special that was to me. No, I think, but there's yeah.
0: no calling out. You shouldn't have marched. You, should, like, you
3: marched to City Hall joyfully. <laughs> like That's what was right for you. Actually, I was sort of frog-marched to City Hall. I didn't even want to get married in the first place. <laughs> I take it so far that I think I just don't identify with the institution. I mean, beyond not wanting to perform the the intimacy that Julia was talking about, I just don't like the idea that the state has anything to say about my relationship. And I remember at the time that, you know, I I marched to City Hall. It was because we were going to have a baby. And I thought, okay, so probably, you know, whatever, for tax reasons or legal reasons or something, we should probably have this piece of paper. But it was never a thing that I identified with as, you know, this is a, a, a rite of passage for my relationship. And that probably... Probably speaks to my own deep psychological hangups or something but yeah never had the desire for that but please everybody out there keep inviting me to your weddings because mm-hmm. wedding dancing is the best dancing
2: there we go um okay well this uh pop-up package on slate is called say yes to the mess there's a lot of rich material in there uh and if you have thoughts on this i have to imagine a lot of listeners do please shoot us an email we love hearing from you let's uh let's move on all right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Dana, what do you have?
3: Stephen, inspired by a small role in The Diplomat, I'm going to endorse um, Rory Kinnear's performance as Hamlet in the National Theater mm-hmm. back in 2010. Rory Kinnear is this actor who whose face I'm sure you know, even if you don't know his name. If you follow British TV at all, he's omnipresent. He was also, I think, in the last three or four James Bond movies. Uh, but principally, he's a classically trained stage actor. And because of my theater nerd daughter, I know that he played an incredible Hamlet, a very specific and, uh, and unusual and weird Hamlet in 2010 for the National Theater. And it was broadcast live. You know, those those things where they, they show theater live in a cinema and you go and watch it on a certain night. It's also now available on The National Theatre app, which I believe, I was trying to figure this out for our listeners, and they may have to do some scouting based on where they live. I think if you're in the U.S., you need to get an add-on for the National Theatre Live for free uh, on various platforms. And then you can watch uh, various National Theatre emissions from the past. So the 2010 Rory Kinnear Hamlet. um, I think it was the first Hamlet my daughter ever saw all the way through, and maybe that's why it blew her away so much. But it is a really extraordinary performance in that role.
0: Oh, man. I got to go see that because I will confess that remember that very, 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 very bad Alex Garland movie we talked about? Yes, of course. Mm -hmm. That stars Rory Kinnear as all the bad men. Like, it really took me the first several episodes of this show to be like, oh, get that gross movie (laughs) off of this guy.
3: That movie is truly really bad. You notice that I did not cite it in my attempt to to no. conjure up who Rory Kinnear is. But anyway, in Diplomat he's also very good. He plays this sort of very Brexity, you know, right-wing nationalist PM mm. of of Britain and uh, he's he's quite funny and sharp in it. And he's very shape-shifting. In spi- I mean, I guess in men, he's shape-shifting in the worst way. Yeah. CGI-80 shape-shifting. <laughs> the,
0: the, the, like, masculine slime aftertaste turns out to actually sort of work for the character. But I did, just for the first few times he was on the scene, I was like, oh my god, is that role just going to ruin his whole career? <laughs>
2: I guess not. (laughs) Hopefully not. Oh, he's also so incredible in Peterloo.
3: Oh, that's another whole conversation. But the Mike Lee movie Peterloo, he plays a a, a major role and it's a fantastic film.
2: Uh, That's so good. Uh, Julia, what do you have?
3: Um, Hollywood's writers are as
0: of yesterday evening now on strike, which is an absolutely seismic story. Hasn't happened for more than 15 years. Um, and we will no doubt be talking about it in more detail next week. It was not quite clear whether this strike would be averted and/or would be postponed. Um, so we'll be talking more about it soon. But I would encourage our listeners to subscribe to the Wide Shot, which is our newsletter at the LA Times covering the business of Hollywood uh, for ongoing analysis. Um, this is a major story with much to say about the economics of entertainment. We will be digging in further, but uh, the Wide Shot will also keep you good company through these travails.
3: Oh, I just signed up for it now while you were talking, Julie. I didn't know about the wide Good. shot, and I'm trying to keep an eye on the strike because it's a huge, huge issue that we'll probably be talking about at some point on this show.
2: Yeah, as soon as next episode. All right, so this is um, – I think we've all spent, a. am going to guess, about a decade or more attempting to outshine John Swansburg, who came in and endorsed a little-known TV show called Cheers. And um
0: never forget when I endorsed Chinatown, a fine film. But yes, continue.
2: <laughs> the blueness of the sky, a little band called The Beatles, you know. I mean anyway, <laughs> I kind of am trending in that direction. I don't think I don't think I have the Trump card to end all trump cards here when I say that I am finally really digging in and watching the TV show High Maintenance. And um it's <laughs> just wildly behind the curve for the host of a culture podcast. But um, I liked it when I first saw it. I, I saw, you know, maybe a handful of episodes of the first HBO season when we talked about it. I liked it well enough. I didn't feel compelled to go back. How wrong I was. It I, I think one should try to keep the word masterpiece in one's mouth for as long as you can until you can't help it. And I'm sort of there. I think the show is actually kind of a masterpiece. It's, just so true to its own rhythms, moods, sensibility. For those who don't know it, it's about a a pot dealer in New York in the pre legalization era. But you know, he's on a bike; he's a bike courier, and you know. Um, but what it really is is this very slowly, carefully, patiently built mosaic of the borough of Brooklyn in the teens and beyond, m- made with astonishing nuance uh, subtlety and a refinement um, and precision for the medium and quite beautiful and empathetic and forgiving um, while being very true to each one of the subcultures that it enters um, I love it I mean I really love it I admire it almost boundlessly yeah Dana I'm not wrong right about this it's Unique, really. It really is unique. It's like nothing else I can think of.
3: Yeah, I'm glad you've come to this, even if it's late in in Cheers style. But I was just going to say, if you'll permit me to be a complete hipster, that really the best high-maintenance of all is the web series High Maintenance before it went on HBO. And I think we may have talked about it on this show when it was just a web series, because it was somewhat of a groundbreaking—you know, it got a really big audience for a a web-only show at the time— And what's really unusual about the the era when it was a web series is that that there's no standardized length to the episodes. So some of them are 12 minutes long. Some of them are... 30, 40 minutes long. And then, of course, when they moved to HBO, they standardized it to half an hour. I still loved it. I loved, I watched it the entire, all the seasons, however many there were on HBO. But I always felt like the kernel of that show when it was just this thing that two people who were married at the time were making together for the web, for whatever audience would, would tune in and stream it, was really, really special. So you have that to look forward to when you finish Absolutely. all of the HBO episodes. I
2: cannot wait. All right. Well, thanks, Dana. Fun show. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at Slate.com slash CultureFest. And you can email us at CultureFest at Slate.com. Our introductory music is by Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews for Dana Stevens and... Heather Schwedell and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.